Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, last week we were talking about how God makes us the, the light of the world, um, and really that light is just reflecting the fact that we know we're blessed, that he blesses those who hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness, just as we, we sang, he, he gives us what our hearts hunger for. Uh, this morning we're going to uh, look at another one of those uh, you are statements, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but I was just going to start by uh, you know, sharing about, about some of the weird conversations we would have uh, in seminary. In seminary, you've got a bunch of, uh, bunch of people who are hungry uh, to know more about God and know more about his word, and uh, maybe sometimes a little too hungry. We start getting in some weird conversations about like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Uh, that's an old, old the- scholarly theological debate. That, that it was actual conversation, right? About sort of angelology. What's the nature of non-corporeal beings, you know, who are spiritual, and you know, how many can exist at one time in one place, and how small can that place be? And anyway, just some of the rabbit trails that that sometimes overly theological people can go. Uh, but there's other questions that are similar to that that maybe you don't have to be a weird seminary student to entertain. Maybe a friend of yours from school or a friend of yours from work or, you know, that, that person or that who who's just knows you're a Christian and wants to just kind of take a dig, wants to kind of challenge you like, okay, you're so smart, you're so theological. Can God, you know, an all-powerful God, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it, right? You know, those kinds of, ooh, zinger stumped you. Or did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? You know, those kind of deep theological questions. Or one that I heard recently that I hadn't discovered or had heard before, which is if God sneezes, what do you say to God? You know, anyway, uh, those are those profoundly, you know, theological uh, uh, statements that we want to wrestle with. There's another one that goes like a couple of millennia back, and, and we actually find it in Matthew 22. So if you've found your, your place, I'm going to read verses Uh, 23 through 33. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Uh, This is an encounter between Jesus and a group of uh, folks who were opposing him called the Sadducees. In the same day, uh, the Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no, no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, And his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, like all seven brothers died. After them all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, 
uh, a similar astonishment at, at your word, at your truth, at your being, uh, who you are and what you have come to do for us. Uh, thank you for how you regard us. And we pray that our hearts and our minds um, would see ourselves the way you see us, that we would see others the way you see them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. <clears throat> so, you know, <laughs> the Sadducees, uh, they, they think they've, they've, they've got Jesus. They thought they a real zinger, you know, for Jesus. Oh boy, he's never going to figure this one out. Um, of course he does. So, uh, who are the Sadducees? A lot of you have heard of the Pharisees. But if you're uh, new to the Bible or new to church, uh, all these groups are kind of weird to you. Uh, so the Sadducees were like the modern day, um, uh, uh, sort, sort of like the liberal group. You know, the Pharisees would have been the conservative group and the, the Sadducees would have been the liberal group because the Sadducees were very selective about what they thought was God's word. They liked to pick and choose. So they really only believed that the first five books of the Bible were, were given to God, uh, given by God to his people. So it would have been the, the Pentateuch of the books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, and so on. So um, they didn't think that the prophets or the Psalms or, you know, those books were, were really by God to his people. And so they, they like to pick or choose. And you've run into people like that, right? And we, we have that tendency. There's favorite places of ours in the Bible, and then there's places that we're not really sure about. We don't want to read those. And, and that's sort of a contemporary thing, but it also goes back to, you know, millennia. People have been doing this forever, picking and choosing what they want to believe about God rather than sort of letting God tell us, you know, really who he is and, and who we are. So since their knowledge of God's word was, was, was pretty limited in its scope, they didn't believe in the resurrection uh, because in the first five books of the Bible, there's actually not a lot about you know, what happens after we die, but you read about that in the Psalms and in Isaiah and the prophets. So because the Sadducees are just sort of excluding those portions of the Bible, they don't have a whole lot of familiarity with the resurrection. In fact, they thought, uh, we're not, we don't believe all that stuff. When you die, you die, and that's it. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna put Jesus in his place because he's talking about eternal life and so on, and uh, so why don't we just sort of pose this little bit of a thought experiment to Jesus and see how, how he responds to this. And so here's their thought experiment. See Dick, see Jane, see Dick and Jane, see Dick and Jane get married, and then see Dick die. And then see Jane marry Nick, Dick's brother, right? And then Nick dies. And then see Jane marry Rick, Nick and Dick's you know, brother and, you know, and so on and so on until everybody's dead and they're all standing around in heaven supposedly you know, wondering, well, whose wife is Jane? You know, Rick, Dick, Nick, whoever. You know? And so the you know, Sadducees are sort of patting themselves on the back. See, we got Jesus. There's no way out of that conundrum. Like, who cares? It's just ridiculous. It's a silly, silly situation that the, uh, the, the, Pharise or the Sadducees are trying to, to trap Jesus with. It's actually rooted in um, you know, some of Moses' writings, but they're taking it to like this illogical extreme. It comes from this old, uh, what they called the Leviterite law, which was a provision for young widows. So they wouldn't be turned out and not have any family, not have any connection, not have any protection. And it was also a provision for um, you know, the, the original deceased man 
so that his name and, and his lineage might continue. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25, which the Sadducees would have said, you know, all right, Deuteronomy, it's one of the Mosaic books, says that if a brother if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, then the wife of the dead brother shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So, you know, it's protecting this young widow, prolonging this, this uh, deceased man's uh, lineage. It's nothing to do with like, okay, well, let's have seven brothers and they all, you know, are husbands to this woman and then they all die. And so see, we've zinged Jesus. They're kind of getting a little bit off track. Now, what Jesus does is he shows them that they're wrong, right? I'm going to read to you instead of Matthew's response. Let me just switch gears to Mark's uh, recording of this event because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all, you know, record the same discussion. And, uh, and, and Mark is a little more succinct, a little more, as Mark typically was, just kind of right to the point. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? This would have been in Exodus, you know, the burning bush. In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You know, just so in case anybody was confused, are they mistaken or not? No, they're quite wrong. Uh, Jesus isn't pulling any, any punches. So, okay. This fall, uh, we started last week, we're doing this series that we're calling You Are. And last week we talked about how when Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, you're the light of the world. And our light is us reflecting the, the blessing that we've received from him. Uh, and, and so we want God to define us. There's lots of voices competing for our attention of how we're supposed to view ourselves, how we're supposed to view one another. And we even in the church spend a lot of time talking about who God is and knowing his attributes and, you know, Jesus's I am statements, et cetera. But it's good to pause too and go, well, who does God consider us to be? You're the light of the world. We want, we want him to define us. And we want him to call the shots. We want his word to shape our understanding of ourselves and of our world. And if that's going to be true, then we also need to acknowledge the places where God says, you are, are wrong. Because we're wrong about some stuff. The, the Sadducees, we're, we're wrong about some stuff. You know, most of our wrong ideas about God and ourselves and about our neighbor and about life in general, they really come from the same you know, uh, ignorance that the Sadducees had. They didn't know God's word and they, they didn't know his power. Uh, and we get in the weeds when, when we're ignorant of God's word, when we're ignorant about what God does and what God does not do, right? Uh, you can run into people and, and, you know, maybe this has been true of, of, of us and our thinking from time to time when we go, you know, I, I want to go to a church that believes what I believe. Well, why bother? I mean, it's sort of my, would be my question. Like, why do you want to go 
to some place that believes what you already believe. Like what, what's formative about that? How are you growing through that if it's only just sort of reinforcing what you already know? It reminds me of this little comic. Um, some, you remember Dilbert? Uh, I've got this uh, old little clip of a Dilbert cartoon because you know, you'll realize why. Anyway, it's Dogbert and Dilbert and they're having a conversation at, at Dilbert's desk. And Dogbert says, hey, I've decided to invent uh, a discount religion. Sounds like a great idea. Tell me more. All right, so Dogbert continues. Uh, I, it's, it's the kind of religion where tithing is only gonna be 5% and I'd let people sin as much as they want it. Brilliant. And then Dogbert sort of reflects on, on his you know, discount religion and he comes to this conclusion, the only problem is that I, I don't wanna spend time with anyone who would want to join that sort of religion. <laughs> Right? I mean, there's really nothing, and there's no integrity there. So the whole notion of, I just want to go join or or be a part of a religion or a spiritual group that already believes what I believe, that's just kind of easy, isn't formative. It doesn't satisfy that longing that we have where we know we're not there yet. There's, that's the hunger to be satisfied. We can't always articulate it, but we just know I'm not, we're not there yet. As an individual or as a, a human race or whatever, we have not arrived. Like we, all we gotta do is flip through the news channels. All you gotta do is say amen to, to Mike's um, really helpful prayer, right? There's just pain in this world. And it's not just out there, it's in here. We're not arrived at. We need something to shape us and, and change us and grow us. And, you know, there's, there's a straightforward solution, according to Jesus, is to know God's word, to, to know what God has revealed about himself so that we can know who God is and what he does and what he doesn't do. And if, um, if that's something that you want to do, I want to encourage, you know, daily, regular Bible reading to you. If, uh, if, if this is the only exposure you're getting to God's word is, you know, coming Sunday, this is good, but it's just really gonna kind of still leave you hungry. God wants us to know his word. Uh, so if you don't have the habit of daily Bible reading, I wanna encourage you to do that. You don't have to start at Genesis, although it's a good idea. Eventually you wanna read through the whole Bible multiple times, but start in, start in the New Testament, start in Matthew. And just read about Jesus and, and then just keep going through the end of the New Testament uh, and do it a chapter a day or something like that. And be knowing what God's word says, but more importantly, looking at what Jesus does. Looking at what Jesus doesn't do. Because he's the perfect picture of the Father. He's the, the, the fullness of, of the revelation of who God is, the image of the invisible God. If we wanna know what God is like, we look at Jesus. What does he say? What does he do? What does he not do? And that's going to help us understand, you know, who God is as he's revealed himself to us, not, not just our projection of what we think uh, God is like, because that's how we get into the weeds. The gospel is declaring this remarkable news that how, how we who are wrong about a lot of things can be right. Right before God, right about life, right about the world, and, and, and can have a lot of our wrong things correct. And one of the greatest graces that you and I could ever receive is to learn that we're wrong about some stuff. To learn that we were wrong about the money we owed to the IRS 
In fact, we get a credit back because I forgot to take, you know, the, what the, the whatever the credit is, the child credit or American education credit or whatever it is. When you forget to take that credit and the IRS calls you back and says, oh, by the way, here's a check. Good, I'm wrong. That's awesome. And when you find out you were wrong about that lump and your oncologist says, hey, good news, it's benign. You were worried, you were anxious, you were sure it was cancer. Or you're wrong about your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Like they're keeping secrets and you know they're having conversations with people and you're like, are they going to break up? What's going on? No, you're wrong. They're planning your surprise birthday party. When you're wrong about your boss, you overheard having a conversation about somebody filling your position. And then you find out, no, you're getting a promotion. You're not being replaced. So like it's a grace to find out that we're wrong sometimes, great grace. And that grace is no, is, is no more apparent and no more evident than when it comes to Jesus showing us where we're wrong about ourselves, wrong about him, but how we can be right. We've all got this allergic kind of reaction to, to being told we're wrong. I get it, I feel it. It's like this anaphylactic spiritual response where we feel like we can't breathe and I've got to fight back and I've got to prove that I'm right. And, and that's not a bad thing, actually. Like, I, I think it, we, we're sort of conditioned to think that we, we shouldn't ever you know, feel bad about being wrong. We should always, just always be so, so open to being correct and so on. But I want to just acknowledge the fact that, that we so desperately want to be right because it comes from a good place. It's just perfection is printed over every cell of our being because that's how we were created. And when we're confronted with the fact that we're not perfect, that we've got some things wrong, we, we kind of bow up against that. Why? Because we're grieving. We're grieving what used to be true of us. It's this echo uh, from Eden when we were created in original righteousness and holiness. I mean, Paul says that in Ephesians 4 to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we weren't designed to be wrong. And when we're told that we're wrong and when we feel bad about that or when we get defensive about that, 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 comes, that comes from a good place. How we respond to that, that's where our pride can really get us in a bad place. Because if we resist, I mean, yeah, it can be hard, it can be painful, it can feel like a death to confess, yeah, I'm, I'm wrong. But if we're not willing to go there, that's just pride. And that's what's gonna keep us from seeing the places where God wants to kind of open the blinds, pull back the shades and show us, you're, th this is what's true. You're, you know, looking at this and what's accurate is over here. And that's what the gospel shows us. So at some point, right, and it's either now or sometime in the immediate future, or in the ultimate future. On that day, capital D, Judgment Day, every human being on this planet's gonna have to acknowledge, you know what, I'm, I'm wrong about some stuff. I don't have a corner on the market of ultimate reality. I need to be taught, I need to be discipled, I, I, need, I need revelation. I need God's word. I need to know who he is and what he does and what he doesn't do. And I, and I need him to inform me. It doesn't come from in here. It comes from God revealing it to us. 
Hebrews 4, it says that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it's healthy to admit that we're wrong about some stuff. It's hard, but it's healthy. And it's good to, to call a doctor when we realize something's not healthy inside of me. I, I, I need a physician, and Jesus is our physician. And so when, you know, the uh, Jesus' opponents were giving him a hard time about all the weirdos and losers and fringe people he was hanging out with, Jesus looks at them and says, look, you know, <laughs> those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick do. And I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's who Jesus attracts. That's who he welcomes. Those who know I'm wrong about some things and, and I need help. So how does Jesus respond to these Sadducees who think they're right? You know, they've got all eternity figured out. Jesus tells them they're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That religion, as Jesus uh, reveals it, has things to teach us that we don't already know. We, we need to know what's in here. That's why, you know, we come here on Sundays. That's why we study it ourselves. That's why we, you know, do, get in groups. And, and we want to know what God's Word says because it's going to teach us some things that are going to be unfamiliar to us, even maybe unwelcome to us. But doesn't that make sense? If religion actually, if real religion comes from outside of us, the religion that comes from within us is dogbert religion. <laughs> and it just affirms everything we already like about ourselves. But it's not going to shape us, and it's not going to change us, and it's not going to perfect us. Um, C.S. Lewis said that if Christianity could tell me no more of the far-off land or heaven or ultimate reality than my own temperament led me to surmise already, then Christianity would be no higher than myself. If our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or even repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. The first step in becoming right and having that hunger for righteousness satisfied, the first step is confessing we're wrong. The first step to being right is to look at Jesus, to follow him instead of following our noses. That's why Jesus would say in, you know, uh, in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. We need a teacher. We can't be self-taught. We need a Lord. We, we need to bow to what his will is, not our own will. And, and in his scriptures, in what he's revealed about himself, there is a righteousness, a rightness that we can have. This is the way Paul describes it. He says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the non-Jew, for everyone in the whole world, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, meaning it begins in faith, it continues by faith, and it ends by faith. And it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's completely foreign to us because we think our rightness comes from here. And it doesn't. Our temptation is to, to constantly project our earthly experience onto the heavenly reality instead of the other way around. 
It ought to be heaven that's projecting its reality onto ours and shaping how we're viewing the world. But this is how it works sometimes. Like, where are we wrong about religion? Where are we quite wrong about religion? Maybe you've run into the person who wants to be right with God, but who just feels like there's no hope anymore. God's fed up, fed up with me. I've messed up too many times and God can't possibly forgive me. I don't know, maybe that's a conversation you've had with a friend or a family member, or maybe that's you. I'm gonna tell you some good news. You're wrong. You're quite wrong. You cannot out-forgive God. Each one of us kind of has our limit. Like how much are we gonna put up with before we write somebody off? Some of you, you know, you've got a long limit. God bless you, some of, some of us have short limits. But we all have our limits before we start kind of saying, that's it. And there was a conversation between Jesus and Peter once upon a time. And, and Peter was starting to think, I think he thought he was getting it. I think he thought, all right, I've got Jesus figured out. I'm on the right track and I'm, I, I've, okay, Jesus. So when somebody sins against me, you're saying I need to forgive them and 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 for, like seven times, right? Like just keep forgiving them so up to seven times? And I can sort of imagine this like tone in Peter's voice and sort of the look on his face like, that's it, right? I've got it. And Jesus just basically has to say to him, um, Peter, you're still wrong. <laughs> no. It's up to 70 times seven. Like you can't out-forgive God. You can't not forgive enough. And, and that's what the grace of the gospel keeps telling us is that no matter how many times you mess up, God will still forgive us. You can't out-forgive God. Even though we have our limits, he does not. The good news of the gospel is that everybody who repents and keeps repenting, keeps on being forgiven. Hell is not for the person that God no longer forgives. Hell is for the person who no longer repents. You cannot forgive God. So if you think God is fed up with you, you're wrong. He will, he will always receive you. He will never stop taking you back. Another place that we start projecting our reality onto heaven instead of the other way, which is, you know, a, a mistake that we're making, is you ever heard the person say that, you know, um, God helps those who help themselves? You've run across that person, or maybe you, you kind of are inclined to believe it. The truth is we all sort of think that. And I, I want to tell you some good news. You're wrong. <laughs> we're wrong. <laughs> And, and the, you know, heaven isn't like the Olympics where the gold and silver and bronze medal go to the fastest and the strongest and the best. Grace doesn't come to those who achieve. The grace of God comes to those who, who believe. 
But there is one who is faster and stronger and better than all of us, and his name is Jesus. He took the medal stand. He wears the crown of righteousness, and he freely welcomes all of us to join him on the podium to, to celebrate his righteousness given to us as a gift. He accomplished that when he died in our place. He died for sinners. That's what he was doing on the cross, was taking away our guilt, our shame, you know, all the wrong things that we had done. He was our substitute sin bearer so that when we believe in him, those sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, God tells us. And he doesn't look at us based on our merits. He doesn't look at us and judge us based on our achievements. Instead, he looks at us based on Jesus' merits, Jesus' achievements. And so, you know, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves to Jesus, who take big scooping heaps of Jesus and plops him on our plate. More please, more of Jesus, please. That's, that's who we need. And, and so that's where we're wrong too. And then uh, let me just, I, I'll come back to this because I, I, I sort of skipped over the whole thing about marriage. And this whole passage about these, uh, the Sadducees saying like, all right, whose husband is, this, um, is she going to have, this, this woman going to have? And Jesus says, well, there's, there's no marriage in heaven. And some people think that God doesn't allow marriage in heaven. And if you think that, you're sort of wrong sort of right. So Jesus is, isn't, you know, he's telling us the truth. Humans aren't going to be married in heaven, but there is marriage in heaven. The reason why humans aren't married in heaven is because our human marriages are pointing to the true, glorious, great marriage between God and his people. That's the marriage that, that our human marriages are, are preparing us for. And so some of you, you're reading, you know, Matthew 22 and you're going, oh no. Like I'm, you're, you're blissfully, happily, gloriously married and you can't bide the thought of, of not being married to your spouse in eternity. That doesn't sound like heaven to you. That sounds terrible. God bless you. Your marriage is just the hors d'oeuvre compared to the bliss and the glory and the happiness that you and your, your spouse, he or she will be your sister or your brother forever in relation, in union with your true groom, your true heavenly husband. And for those of you struggling through marriage, where it's painful and it's hard, the love we receive from our heavenly groom is going to redeem that pain. It's going to restore your goodness and your gladness. You, you will rejoice in marriage, I promise. But the true marriage between our, our heavenly husband. When Paul says things like, uh, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him, this is what we're, we're pointing to. Like, this, like you're wrong, you're gloriously wrong. And, and heaven's reality will forever correct the places where we've kind of gotten off in the weeds because we didn't know God's word or we didn't know his power. And he shapes us and, and helps us. And lastly, when, when Jesus talks about how God is the God of the living, right, and the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, 
It's not God of the dead, but of the living. This gets at the heart of what heaven's really about. This, this joy of heaven is about being with the one we love forever. More than that, being with the one who loves us with his perfect love forever. The living God. You know, right? We're, we're, we're considering that he loves us perfectly. Like, like to be in that presence and to have that joy forever is what heaven is about. Um, I get a daily devotional from our, uh, our denomination publishes a magazine called By Faith. You can look it up. It's really got some helpful stuff in it. But they do a daily devotional too. And uh, a couple of weeks back, there was one just talking about Blaise Pascal. He was a French mathematician. And he came to Christ later in his life. Um, you know, he didn't have a, he was an agnostic or uh, maybe he was an atheist. But anyway, God got a hold of him. And when he did, it was powerful. And Blaise Pascal, the brilliant person, you know, keen mind, uh, but absolutely overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for him. And weirdly, I don't know how it happened, but eight years after he died, somebody's going through, I guess, some of his um, belongings or his estate. And they come across his coat. And somebody's, you know, you can imagine picking up the coat and we're going to put it over here and put it in this pile, maybe to take to Goodwill or something like that. But they feel a lump, you know, in the side of the coat and it, or a crinkling sound. And it's, and it's in the lining of the coat. And they realize that he's, he's inserted a piece of paper into the lining of the coat. And they're like, well, just like you and I would be kind of curious, what, what is this? And, and they open the the lining, pull back the stitching, pull out the piece of paper, and it's a note to self from Blaise Pascal describing his conversion. And it reads, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night to about half past an hour after midnight, fire, all caps, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. And we won't be. That's what the, the wedding tells us, that, that heaven, paradise, is more of a person than a place. That what we're looking forward to is a wedding, a union between God and his people where we will be loved by him forever. Like, here's another place where we're wrong. You know, you, get, you hear people talking about how they can't wait to go to heaven where there's streets of gold and my mansion in the sky and the 19th green or whatever, you know, Ge geographical illusion. Now, it's not all wrong, right? Some of that, that stuff's in the Bible. Streets of gold, mansions that Jesus says he's preparing for us. That's just the setting for where we enjoy the relationship. Luxury is boring. Go to any resort, stay there long enough, and you will get tired of endless shrimp cocktail. You're ready to move on. That's why there's million-dollar celebrity mansions for sale right now, because they're tired of that gold toilet seat. I want a different, you know, pearl gold, pearl toilet seat or whatever. And you can go buy, 
you know, a celebrity. You can buy Elon Musk's mansion right now in LA because they get tired of it. But you don't get tired of being loved. You can't get tired of perfect, perfect love uh, swallowing you up. And that was what we're looking forward to. This brings us really to the last thing that Jesus is going to correct about us. The last thing that in, in, in eternity that we will have to, to reckon with when we go, oh, you know what, I was wrong. And that is when we stand before Jesus and we're bathed in his love and we're, we know his approval, we have his acceptance and we're glorying in the fact that he loved us and gave himself for us. That's when we will realize through uh, all that ongoing process of, of our earthly sanctification when it comes to its fullness and its culmination in our glorification. And in that moment, we will realize we were wrong. That you were wrong. You're not a loser. You're loved. You're not worthless. No matter how many times you were told that growing up, no matter how many voices in your head are telling you you're trash, Jesus pronounces, you are my treasure. You were wrong. You're not ugly. You're holy. You're wrong. You're not a failure. You're an overcomer. And in that moment when, when we realized we were gloriously wrong <laughs> and when we soak in the reality of how God perceives us, how he regards us, how we're loved, how we're holy, how we're his treasured possession. And we start looking around and we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's true. And we look to our right and we look to our left and we see, we see him and we see her and we go, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't imagine I would see him here. He's a loser. <laughs> I didn't imagine I'd see her here. She's a failure. And that's when we realize we were wrong about them too. And maybe, maybe what we can do right now is start to see ourselves better, more accurately through the lens of Scripture, through how God sees us. Maybe we start seeing ourselves now as the way we will be. And maybe we can also start looking at one another the way God sees them too. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word which shows us the places where we're wrong. And there's a part of us that really doesn't like that, uh, but it's good to know where you are right and where you are uh, shaping us and changing us so that we see ourselves more the way you do, so that we're not believing the world's lies, so that we can start seeing ourselves through the truth of the gospel, that we're loved, that we're holy, uh, that we're treasured because of your grace and your forgiveness uh, toward us through Jesus. So help us uh, fix our eyes on him, uh, the author and perfect of our faith. 
Help us follow him. Help us believe him. Help us to see ourselves and our neighbor and our world the way you do. Lord, for any here this morning uh, who are struggling with how they see themselves, Lord, and that's probably true for all of us. Uh, Lord, by your grace, send your spirit and show us more and more we're your children. In your name we pray, amen.